Hello everyone and welcome back to Rupture Radio. In today's episode, I sat down with Paul Murphy to discuss the idea of eco-socialist degrowth. This episode is intended to be a prelude to a public meeting. Rupture Media and RISE are holding next Thursday, 5th of May, to discuss the topic. The meeting will take place at 7pm in Connolly Books. The event is entitled The Case for Eco-Socialist Degrowth and will feature Paul Murphy and Stefania Barsa, an environmental historian and author of Workers of the Earth, Labour, Ecology and Reproduction in the Age of Climate Change. It would be great if a few listeners could make it to the event, and so I'll leave a link to where you can find tickets below. The ideas touched on in this episode will be explored further at the meeting itself. Alright, so thanks a million for sitting down with me, Paul. Pleasure to be here. So as a a prelude to our degrowth meeting next week, we're going to have a kind of brief overview discussion of ideas around the concept of degrowth. To begin then, while the concept has a longer history, it seems ideas of degrowth have re-emerged in debates among environmentalists and eco-socialists in, say, the last five years. So to begin with, what is the idea of degrowth as commonly posed today, and where did these ideas originate? Yeah, I mean, effectively, there are two you know, trends of thought here and that we and some others are attempting a fusion of the most important elements of both. Um, Obviously, one is the ideas of socialism, which presumably listeners have a, you know, basically clear idea of um, the evolution of socialism from the utopian socialist to so-called scientific socialism developed by uh, Marx and Engels and the kind of revolutionary Marxist tradition that um, we would see ourselves in. but then the other school of thought that we're engaging with here is the ideas of degrowth, which effectively are kind of a radical wing of the environmental movement who have drawn the conclusion that growth is the problem and we need to have degrowth, negative uh, growth, to avoid absolute environmental catastrophe, you know, the continuation of the sixth mass extinction event event in terms of the crisis of biodiversity and so on. Um, Within the framework of degrowth, there's lots of different ideas. You know, there's ideas that are, um, you know, definitively not socialist, that the problem is growth, basically degrowth in some way could be done on the basis of uh, capitalism uh, and so on. But there's also like a a left wing of uh, degrowth and people who are you know, arguing, as we would agree, that, look, this has to be done in a just and equitable way that is only possible on the basis of a break with capitalism, socialist economic planning. So we, and then we're not the only ones, there's other people, there was a really good article recently, and um, which was published in Monthly Review amongst other places, which included, was it like a more kind of a thesis? I think Michael Lowy, Sabrina Fernandez, and some others. Oh, I've seen um, that, yeah. involved in that Um, but basically saying that it's time for eco-socialists degrowth to be clear what we mean by that is not a slogan but a concept a concept to inform what sort of demands we raise and so on and maybe just to explain and because i think there is you know a lot of a lot of the debates that have taken place around degrowth have taken place on the basis of people meaning different things by the word degrowth. Um, what we mean by degrowth, say, is there's a, a definition provided in Jason Hickel's book, uh, Less is, is More, which is definitely worth reading for people. I mean, it 
don't agree with all the ideas in the book, but it's a very good introduction to, to degrowth. And it's basically a progressive view of, of degrowth. But anyway, the definition he gives is a, a planned downscaling of energy and resource use to bring the economy back into balance with the living world in a safe, just and equitable way. So in brass tacks, we think it's just scientifically unavoidable that in order to avoid absolute catastrophe, the world as a whole needs to use less energy and have a lower material throughput, i.e. use less stuff, less materials. That, that That's just an unavoidable scientific objective necessity. You cannot have infinite growth on a finite planet, regardless of how you organize production. But we marry that with the idea that the, one, the only way that can actually happen is on the basis of challenging capitalism. Growth is inherent to capitalism. It flows from the profit logic of uh, capitalism. And two, the only way that it can happen in a just and equitable way, which will see growth in education, in healthcare, in the provision of public goods, in the global south, but degrowth uh, and on a bigger scale in terms of armaments, in terms of advertising, in terms of private car production, in terms of lots of other things. The only way that can happen is on the basis of democratic public ownership, and economic planning. Yeah, I think that definition provided by Jason Hickel is a useful one and encapsulates the core idea of degrowth. However, while some have acknowledged the gravity of the climate crisis, they have been hesitant to call for uh, degrowth or to engage with the ideas of degrowth. There are some who are more sympathetic to the idea that claim that the slogan is just not a useful one and causes confusion. But then there is also a section of the eco-socialist left who have likened the ideas of degrowth to a kind of eco-thatcherism, which calls for limits on economic development or population controls. This all relates, I think, to the fact that those who have called for those types of measures in the past also link them to an idea of a carrying capacity of the earth. What do you make of all this and what criticisms of the sometimes non-socialist framing of degrowth do you find to be persuasive? Yeah, I mean, so the first thing I think is to emphasize that um, oh, the, the, there are just objective limits to the amount of energy you can use and, and material. I mean, it, they're linked because like, in theory, you know, you can have a thing called solar communism, right? You've this sun, which is just giving out huge amounts of energy, if it could be harnessed with solar power and so on. Well, then, okay, the limit is very, very far away. There isn't enough minerals in the world for us to produce enough solar panels to continue the way that we are going. And similarly, in terms of electric cars, there's yeah. a recent report, there isn't enough lithium in the world to have just replace all the private combustion engine cars with electric cars. There are real limits, like, and that doesn't mean, you know, we're not saying the issue is overpopulation or population or any of that stuff. But for example, like there are you know, nine planetary boundaries um, generally accepted by uh, scientists. So it's, it's not just about the amount of CO2 in the atmosphere. It's about ozone depletion. It's about um, nitrogen. It's about um, the quality of the water. It's about phosphorus. There's a whole series of there's nine different planetary boundaries. And it's accepted that we've crossed four of the nine, you know? And just by saying we have democratic public ownership, it doesn't get beyond that problem. Those are actual real material limits. So that, that forces a bit of a rethink about like, you know, the idea of superabundance would have been an idea that like, you know, within you know, a communist classless society, we're going to superabundance. You need to reconsider what you mean by that. 
it isn't possible to have quantitative superabundance of everything. Everybody can't, in a future social society, everybody can't have an individual electric car. That's just, just, it's not physically possible for us to do that. And to even come close to doing that would require incredible destruction to the earth with all sorts of environmental problems kind of flowing from that. So you need to reimagine what superabundance means in qualitative terms, which is that, you know, a superabundance in terms of free time, a superabundance in terms of leisure activities, superabundance in terms of like a real quality connection that people have with each other, combined with like very high standards of material living. Um, but it can be done in the way of, you know, significant public transport and so on. So just to, to kind of deal with your, your point as well, like, yeah, so like the most hostile people to degrowth in the in terms of the left would be people who could be defined. And I think they'd largely accept the definition of eco as eco-modernists. They often would also reject, wouldn't even in, embrace the term eco-socialist. They'd say, oh, well, socialism incorporates all of that. And effectively, we would see those ideas as like a kind of a rehashing of the productivism, what's known as Prometheanism of some of the socialist movement of the past, which is the idea that you can just like produce your way out of crises, just produce more and more stuff without any negative impact. Um, what they rely on, um, and just in a simplistic way, they, they rely on the idea that stuff that is not currently invented, for example, you know, carbon capture and storage on a massive scale, is going to be invented. Um, and that'll mean that we can continue on our current trajectory of growth, but just shift to solar panels and, and so on and other, uh, you know, more to a higher percentage of, of renewable energy or, for example, shift to nuclear without dealing with all of the complications and dangers that arise from that. And we think, like, just from a rational point of view of humanity, to take that gamble of yeah. continuing on the road of producing more and more and more stuff in the hope and destroying our environment more and more and more in the hope that this magical invention is going to come around the corner in a few years time in time to save us is a very dangerous game um they're also the kind of people who are open to like geoengineering um you know the idea that for example you'll shoot to stop climate change you'll shoot loads of like little bits of metal into the air to reflect reflect the sun back and so to produce global warming but like that also has loads of negative consequences. What happens when the, when the metal comes down again and then you have all this um, extra heat kind of all of a sudden imposed, the danger of like doing too much, like messing with nature in that way is a dangerous game to, to play. And there's a great quote from Engels that I can't remember, but basically it's like, you know, when you do this kind of stuff, nature's going to have its revenge on you. And so we think like at the center of what an eco-socialist project should look like is restoring the balance and the relationship between humanity and nature. Like, I think, you know, the concept of the metabolic rift, which John Bellamy Foster kind of rediscovered from Marx, Marx and Engels, the idea of this, this rift in the relationship between humanity and nature, like that's being caused by capitalism and the nature of production organized by capitalism. We need to overcome that, overcome the alienation of humanity from itself, but also from uh, nature. And that like, you know, all, all these is in a very abstract way, but I, I think like, when posed in concrete terms, in terms of people having quality of life, quality relationships, quality time for those things, that's actually the stuff that most people want to, to have, of course, with a basic standard of living, which enables them to live in, in comfort. Um, no question about that. Yeah, for sure. And just to add to that, a, a core part of degrowth analysis that I think is important 
is the understanding of the relationship between the abundance of materials in the global north and the extraction and pillaging of the global south. And as you mentioned, a lot of eco-modernist analysis depends on the assumption that we can develop our way out of the crisis through green technology, but that doesn't seem to bear out with the limitations on lithium and the necessary minerals to achieve that transition. Given that, I think it's clear that we'll have to limit at least some sectors of society, and I think those who are engaging with the idea of degrowth are grappling with these issues already. Exactly. And there's, so there's, there is a relationship between the growth model of capitalism and extractivism on a massive scale in the global south, for which like, it's ordinary people who pay the price. Indigenous people who often live in these areas where they have these massive you know, like open cast mines, etc. And in terms of like the destruction of the, of the environment and in terms of the people who actually work there in jobs that are extremely dangerous, poorly paid, uh, etc., just one thing, like you said there, like, oh, it's not possible to have the, the quality of life of people in the global north. And I think, like, yeah. what's not possible is to have the, the, the materials. Ma- yeah. Like, yeah, it's exactly. not possible for everyone yeah. to individually own an SUV. Exactly. But, like, then you have to challenge that idea of, like, okay, is that what people actually, you know, what gives you life? Yeah. Sit, like, sitting in an SUV, yeah. um, alienated yeah. from nature, in traffic, an hour into work, an hour out of work, like actually the idea of people sitting in high quality, free public transport and um, working significantly less hours in a week, more time to spend with the kids, higher quality public. I mean, do you know that actually yeah. we can have a, a significantly higher quality of life for almost everybody. I mean, the, 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 an important point to make, of course, is like we're not saying at all that like, you know, your average worker in the global north is going to experience a reduction in terms of quality of life. That's something I want to touch on. Yeah. Anything like that. Yeah. You know, you're you're talking, I mean, the most significant, most impactful thing that you can do for the climate is to take wealth away from the rich. Like the rich produce just the top 10% of humanity uses 20 times more total energy than the bottom uh, 10%. Um, there is just like they waste you know, such incredible amounts of energy, both in terms of like the production that they're responsible for um, and in terms of the kind of, you know, your private jets. Like private jets should be banned immediately. There's a, a quality degrowth demand that doesn't impact on the vast, 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 you know, 99 point something percent of the population, but will cut uh, emissions. The yachts, you know, like yachts are incredible users of energy. Again, for the play and enjoyment of this tiny, tiny minority. So, and, and that is the problem with some of the framing of degrowth is the idea that, you know, for some people, the idea it's on the shoulders of humanity as a whole, whether you're a private jet owning billionaire or a Ugandan subsistence farmer. And that is understandably repulsive to ordinary working class people whose lives are hard. They're not easy. They don't feel that they like have some great life that they're going to, they're going to have a worse life in order to avoid the planet being destroyed. And, we're not saying, and it's very important to say that, no, no, we're not saying that any ordinary person, they're not going to have worse lives. They're going to have significantly um, better lives on the basis of, a, of an eco-socialist plan. Right. Yeah. So essentially what you're saying is we need the traditional socialist transformation, an uprooting of the capitalist system, a removal of the wealth from those at the top, redistribution and democratic control along with a downscaling of certain aspects of society. 
on what industries need to be degrown, I think degrowth advocates have pointed correctly towards military spending and advertising, which takes immense processing. But there are some skeptics who have said, though, along with this degrowing, we'll also need an expansion of certain industries and an expansion and equalization of living standards in the global south. Do you think that this is all captured in the idea of degrowth? Yeah. I mean, and it, see, up until now, the way that most revolutionary socialists who are you know, reasonably sympathetic to the ideas of degrowth have responded to degrowth is by saying, well, yes, we do need degrowth in this and that yes. area. We agree. But we also need growth in terms of in the global south, in public provision of decent quality services and so on. And we, we, we agree 100%. Um, but the point we're making is that it doesn't allow you to evade the central question which is that, like, does humanity as a whole, and to be clear, we accept that in humanity as a whole, there's vast differences in terms of energy use and so on, but does humanity as a whole need to use uh, less energy and have a lower material throughput? And we think the answer to that question is unambiguously yes, which which means we're now degrowthers. That's like, if you accept that that's the case, which I think, like, most people who think it through, whether they want to use the term or not, that's the essential point that degrowth is making, but then within that, it's, of course, like really, really important to make the point of like the mass, massive, you know, wastage, destruction that is done in capitalism that all adds to the GDP. You know, if you spend a bunch of money cutting down the Amazon, that's growth. You know, obviously that needs to be stopped entirely. If you if you spend a bunch of money producing weapons that just kill people and destroy our planet, that's that's growth. That's GDP. That needs to end entirely. Um, I do think the point about advertising is a very important one. It's a point that Michael Lowy raised. He 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 wrote an article for Rupture, maybe in Rupture, maybe issue three. It's very good. People should read it online. Um, called Ecosocialism and or Degrowth. And this point about advertising. There's two aspects to the argument that basically advertising needs to be entirely done away with. One is you know, massive wastage of energy, resources, human labor, ingenuity, etc. You know, some very smart people working out how to advertise products that are effectively the same <laughs> to make us buy one or uh, the other. But also, and this gets me to the second point, also engaged in trying to create new wants for people. You know, you didn't know that you really wanted this latest thing from Wish before Wish told you they wanted it, you know? <laughs> um, and so that's that's the... Getting rid of advertising also allows then for people to decide, you know, un, unpressurized by the forces of capitalism for profit, advertising, to decide what people really want, you know, to, to break free of all this pressure that like the way for people to improve their lives is simply to consume more and more stuff that getting rid of advertising will allow then people themselves to decide, okay, as a society, we think this is really important that we have this. I mean, and I suspect without preempting the decisions of, you know, a future working class in power, I suspect that what people will prioritize is not, you know, fast fashion, use a huge amount of energy, you know, your clothes are done in six months or a year or whatever, is not little like plastic crap toys, you know what I mean? Um, I suspect that what people will prioritize is stuff, quality goods that last, that don't need to be replaced half as often as goods, consumer goods currently need to be placed. And quality has been described as public luxury, you know, like really incredible public amenities, um, both in terms of parks, nature, 
but also like public transport, canteens, restaurants open to the public, very, very low price, you know, like things that are in common, art, culture, investment in those things. I think it's likely that like they're the sort of decisions that a future working class in power would would make free from the pressure of advertising to create the latest uh, want. It allows us to, to discard and to kind of, I think the phrase Michael Lowe used to kind of distinguish between artificial and real wants. Artificial wants being ones that are created by this capitalist system to try and make people um, just buy things for their profit. Yeah, and I'll link that article from Michael Lowe uh, below. I, I had a read of it recently. And it's interesting because, and I think this is, relates back to kind of the confusion around the term degrowth. And Michael Lowy writes that he's taking out a new position, a third position, and calls for what he claims is a a qualitative transformation of development. But that's not too far from the idea of, you know, degrowing certain industries and increasing the capacity in other areas. And it's also notable that when I read those critical pieces of degrowth, they say, I disagree with degrowth, I call for growth in some areas and degrowth in other areas. So there does seem to be like, that common thread through it. Would you make a distinction between that and eco-socialist degrowth? Is there something else that you'd add to that? Or I mean, I think it's an evolution of thought. Yeah. So there's, there's no idea in Michael Lowy's article that I would disagree with. It had a yeah, very exactly. profound effect on me, making me think about these things in a yeah. different way. Because I think, like, politically in the Marxist tradition, I'm, I'm coming from an organization which had more of a productivist mm. view that there you know, weren't really any limits to, to growth on the basis of socialism. We could, like have material superabundance and so on. So it made me think about things in a different way. Like when Jess and I began discussing our article and beginning working on it, we thought, okay, yeah, but the logic of Michael Lowy's position is actually, it is a pro-degrowth position. He doesn't use the term, but that is what it is in reality. And we thought then, okay, we're going beyond that to say eco-socialist degrowth. But the interesting thing is that at the same time, in the same process, Michael Lowy's views himself have evolved where he is now also calling for eco-socialist degrowth. And I don't think that... he has changed any like substantial part of the argument. Do you know what I mean? It's still yeah. for degrowth of some things, growth of other of in other areas. Um, but he is embracing the concept um, and the you know the term in terms of a description of the ideas that we um, stand for. Yeah. So Jen, then, just lastly, I think a lot of the cautions around the label is that degrowth as an idea, as a word, is can, can kind of give off wrong connotations or bad connotations. And you address that in your article in terms of not that we should be taking up the slogan, you know, walking around with banners with degrowth on it, but that we should, that revolutionaries in their mind should have it as like an internal frame, like a concept that we should all understand that no, if the working class comes to power tomorrow, we can't just like continue to grow uh, without any consciousness of it. Um, so you might just like explain the idea of like a, using it as an internal frame. Yeah, exactly. So I think like like John Molyneux, for example, had a very good article, you know, similarly sympathetic to degrowth, mm. like Michael Lowy's article in, I think it was the Irish Marxist Review. Um, and he wrote, in terms of mobilizing people, working class people, um, whether they're located in Los Angeles or Liverpool, Sao Paulo or Soweto, the concept or slogan of degrowth will be a non-starter. Um, and the point we make is that there are two ideas there, you know, um, one is the idea of degrowth as a slogan and the other is degrowth as a concept. Um, so in terms of degrowth as a slogan, we agree. Like we don't envisage there being like mass movements of ordinary people demanding degrowth. Um, why? Because it's too abstract a call. Um, also because the, the ideology of growth um, is, is very strong. Um, it, it has its tentacles wrapped around everybody. It's just part of the common sense, including 
the revolutionary left, like the revolutionary left up until like very recently and still many parts for today are calling for sustainable growth and so on. So the language of degrowth being associated with improvements in people's lives. So it doesn't work as a slogan. But that doesn't mean it can't be an important concept that informs what slogans we raise. And just to be clear, like that isn't, it wouldn't be the first time in the Marxist movement that you have concepts that aren't slogans, that aren't good for mobilizing people, but that enable you to orient yourself in a period of deep crisis and come up with good slogans that are in line with that concept, but that actually have the capacity to mobilize people. So the example that we give in the article, for example, is, is the idea of um, you know, the Marxist, you know, revolutionary Marxist idea of smashing the, the capitalist state. That isn't a slogan to mobilize people, it's really not, but it but it helped to orient, for example, Lenin and the Bolsheviks in 1917, and it, it did inform the slogan, all power to the Soviets, which was enormously popular. So the idea that the repressive capitalist state needs to be dismantled and replaced by a popular state representative and accountable to ordinary working class people. So a, you know, a participative model of democracy. So just then, to, what does it mean for it to inform our slogans? And how do I think this, this concept can be very popular? Um, one, it means that we, we need to reject the revolutionary left should not no longer be using the language of we need sustainable growth. We should not feed in to the ideology that like growth improves people's lives, because in, in, in the most cases under capitalism, it, it doesn't. There isn't really a relationship between growth. Improve. We should use other terms and popularize in a, you know, in, a, in an understandable way the idea of a, a good life for people and what that looks like. Um, and then we should raise demands that make this real for people. And, and in the most part, look, we're not saying... These aren't like, we haven't come up with some like radically new demands, but let's conceive of the demands that we're raising in, informed by this and then emphasize certain aspects of them. So for example, start with positive demands. The idea of a four-day week without loss of pay. That is a, you know, a degrowth demand. You can see that that's popular or it's certainly potentially popular. The idea of free green public transport, again, potentially very uh, popular uh, for, for people. Um, again, this is, this is popular, the idea of a mass retrofitting of people's homes provided by the state. That's, that's huge. You know, homes, heating homes is responsible for 61% of domestic energy consumption, 16% of all energy consumption. Makes people's homes warmer, means they spend less money on fuels. You know, that's, that's, that's popular. Also, the idea that, like, which we have you know, raised from the start of green jobs incorporating care jobs. So healthcare, uh, education, childcare promoting those jobs because they're low carbon jobs they're high high quality high impact jobs for society but they're quite low carbon uh, jobs you know all those sort of things which are part of say the what rise has generally advocated the idea of an eco-socialist green new deal we think that's still very very important but there are also then other demands to raise so negative demands on the capitalist class banning future development of data centers again that's a demand that people for profit has uh, has championed yeah. we should find a way to call for the curtailment of advertising similarly production of suvs private jets should be banned you know fossil fuels we understand should be expropriated from the oil companies and left uh, in the ground and um, but also progressive taxation on the on the rich um, including ex expropriation of the rich like that has a new element that isn't just about like social justice and so on it's also about if we take the wealth off them is literally the best thing we can do to stop polluting the environment. And the final source of demands that, again, I think that can become quite popular is the idea of breaking the cycle of consumption, use, and like throwaway, um, which is a thing that capitalism promotes. 
like inbuilt obsolescence in your phone and your iPhone breaks after two years just at around the time of the new iPhone coming out. And everyone's aware of that more or less, that things are not built to last anymore. Exactly. Would people prefer to have like a modular phone, which could be upgraded over time or whatever, like getting them a new screen and that isn't going to break? Of course they would. So the idea, so for a very simple way, it's a demand that Jason Hickel raises, which I think is a very good idea, is the idea of extended warranties. Like the government says, you know, we pass legislation to say that all mobile phones have to be covered by an extended warranty, which has to last five or 10 years. Okay, now, now they can't have inbuilt obsolescence. And um, also the idea of a right to repair, that any good that is sold has to be able to be repaired at a, at a low cost. And again, it's no longer then in their interest to put in, you know, Cheap, cheap parts that will run out quickly in some key areas that will break and that people have to go and buy a new washing machine or a new fridge or a new phone or whatever. While the, the idea of degrowth as a, as a word can be, you know, it isn't going to be a mass idea, I, I agree. But all those things, you know, sure, you'll get the usual people who are like, oh, it'll never happen, whatever. Like, but like all those things are basically things that people would agree with, be in favor of, et cetera, um, and explaining how they can help us to reduce um, energy usage and reduce uh, material throughput and how that is essential to avoid um, catastrophe, I think is is important. And of course, like the crowning demands of a degrowth, of an eco-socialist degrowth program have to be like, this can't happen. You can't have the reduction of energy usage, the reduction of material throughput on the level necessary and the time frame necessary on the basis of an economy run for profit. It's just not going to happen. You really can't. So you have to take the makers of the iPhone, Apple. You have to take the makers of all these consumer goods and so on. You have to take them out of private ownership, stop them running for profit and the, the growth imperative that goes with that, and instead run them um, publicly, democratically, by ordinary workers um, on the basis of need. I think that's a, a good outline, a good overview. As I mentioned in the introduction, much, much more will be touched on in the meeting next week. And I think it, it gives a good basis for understanding the, the, the core ideas of degrowth. There's an intention for this to be an ongoing discussion. It is already largely an ongoing discussion on many parts of the eco-socialist left. Can I just mention that, um, yeah. just all, precisely as you're saying, all of that is subject to debate, right? So like yes, I've made exactly. a strong case now, like, you know, that, that isn't, um, Rise doesn't have an official position yeah. in favor of this. People for Profit doesn't have an official position. It's, you know, there's a debate about these ideas within Rise, say, for example, within there are like you know, small international trend that rises a part of there's going to be in the next issue of reform and revolution the magazine produced by our my co-thinkers in the in the US part of the democratic socialists of america there's a debate between with a kind of a shortened version of the article we have in rupture versus an article which we haven't seen yet but making the case against degrowth so just like all this is subject to the debate these are ideas that are out there so all the more reason for people to engage in it yeah and, and i hope that the podcast in the future can kind of give some space to that so listeners should keep a, an ear out for future episodes that touch more on on the idea and try and make it to the the meeting next uh on the 5th of may and i'm sure we'll have some audio from that meeting uh, going up on the podcast too uh so yeah keep an ear out and thanks a million for joining me paul thank you 